them from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. No, I'm not going to talk about Tavis smiling or the latest sexual harassment issue. To be honest, it's getting a little old to me, and the politicization of it is totally out of control. Totally out of control. How about something a little bit more important in terms of the nation as a whole? Yes, more important in terms of your liberty. From time to time, often actually, I sit back and I watch what's going on in the news... I'll go on the internet and start reading various stories and so forth. And then I try to think back to history and philosophy and try and think back to our founding and try to make sense of it all. The vast majority of what comes across the television, what comes across the internet, what comes across the radio in terms of news is about the federal government. Maybe it's about a congressman, maybe it's about the Supreme Court, maybe it's about a tax, but it's about the federal government. And this really is a massive alteration of what the founders of this country intended. That we would be spending so much time talking about the federal government, fearing the federal government, trying to win elections so uh, we can control the federal government, expanding the federal government, was never supposed to be this way. And you can see the deleterious effects. I, I said yesterday that as a result of the conservative movement, we've had a lot of electoral victories at the federal level, but very few advances in terms of rolling back what the left has done and advancing liberty. And I believe that. I believe men and women, most of you, believe in America's founding principles, believe in Americanism. Americanism. I also believe, it's a sorry truth, that the so-called conservative intellectual movement is very weak right now. Very weak. In fact, I think it's on, uh, it's on life support. You know, I write books about liberty. I write books about the Declaration and the Constitution. I write books about Supreme Court rulings. I write books about natural law and liberty, what all that means. The reason that most of these books sell about a quarter of a million copies every time I write them, which is by far the largest among conservatives, and yet receives virtually no attention among the fledgling, barely uh, existing conservative intellectual movement is because there really is no conservative intellectual movement. Or it's very small, it's very weak. When you read these so-called conservative outlets, whether they're websites, they have magazines, or whatever it is, What are they promoting? What are they debating? What are they discussing? 
You find anything particularly interesting about them? They just comment on current events? Do you find anything particularly profound about what they have to say? You say, wow, I never thought about that. Let me go dig into something. No, you don't, do you, really? No, it's uh, more debate about the latest bill. And that's okay to discuss, and I'm not against it. I'm talking about the intellectual side of, of conservatism. Debate about a bill, debate about a candidate, who's more moral than somebody else, and so forth and so on. I even hear these guys who talk about tax cuts, and I'm all for them. Supply side, supply side, supply side. That's pretty sterile stuff. Of course, tax cuts are important, but they're a very small piece of the body politic in the civil society. Now, what do I mean by all that? The federal government is making more and more decisions for us. And the more decisions the federal government makes for us, the more divided we will be as a people. Because to centralize decision-making, to politicize decision-making, means you create groups for and against. You create political parties that are for or against. Whereas if you leave these decisions to the individual, nobody really cares. If an individual wants to do something and it's lawful, it's moral, and it doesn't bother you, in any physical or intellectual way, then who cares? But if the government, the federal government, centralizes decision-making and imposes it on you, then you have a battle over the decision because the decision creates uniformity and conformity. This is why when the Supreme Court nationalizes issues, nationalizes issues, particularly on the uh, social and cultural side, Uh, you see endless protesting and division in this country because to have nine uh, lawyers who are Supreme Court justices making so many profound decisions for 320 million Americans, this is extremely divisive for a nation. Of course there are occasions when they should. We have a constitution and they know when they should, but they know when they shouldn't. The reason federalism is such a brilliant idea is because you can move from state to state, and people do. Some states, their population is increasing. Some states, they're depopulating. Mobility is key. Mobility, the ability of the individuals to to get up and move. But the more you have national, federalized, centralized decisions that are imposed on the individual through the states or not through the states, you have an increasingly deteriorating civil society where people are at each other's throats. And the more this is done, the more aggressive the divisions become and the more violent they become. Because there's no way out. Even if you move to another state, if you can't escape Obamacare, you can't escape Obamacare. The whole point of having states and federalism and mobility and and, and reverence for individualism that you read about in the Declaration of Independence, unalienable rights for the individual, is to prevent that kind of centralization. And that was the entire purpose of this nation. The entire purpose of the nation. Now, part of the problem here, and it's a big problem, Jefferson wrote about it, Adams wrote about it, 
others more recently wrote about it. Russell Kirk has written about it and so forth. If a people and their representatives lack virtue, if they lack virtue, then rules don't matter anymore. Then laws don't matter anymore. The Constitution exists as a dead letter. People can take an oath to uphold it, but if they don't uphold it, it really doesn't matter. Supreme Court justices can take an oath to uphold the Constitution and claim they are, but if their real goal is to twist it, to twist its language, to twist its application, and not take its intended meaning, then obviously these are justices that lack virtue. If you have members of Congress who seek to nationalize all issues and redistribute wealth, in violation of private property rights, and also uh, eviscerate the notion of individualism, they can swear to uphold the Constitution, but they're not upholding the Constitution. The people of whom I speak are progressives. Progressives. You cannot have progressivism and constitutionalism. It is an impossibility. I want you to hear me. It is an impossibility... You cannot have progressivism, what I call utopianism in the Meritopia. You cannot have progressivism and constitutionalism. They cannot work together. Constitutionalism is about limiting the power of the central government to those matters specifically mentioned in Article 1, 2, 3, and so forth. Limiting the power of the federal government was the entire purpose of the Bill of Rights. The entire purpose of the Bill of Rights, every one of them, and to protect the individual. The purpose of government today has nothing to do with the individual. We talk about groups, the middle class, whites, blacks, rich. We don't talk about individuals. Even Republicans don't talk about individuals. You know what else we don't talk about? Liberty. It's always talking about equality. Equality of outcomes, equality of redistribution. In other words, socialist ideas. You can hear it on the tax bill. By Republicans and Democrats. And you know what else we don't talk about? Virtue, of course. That's the linchpin. That's the linchpin against lawlessness. You can have all the laws you want. But if people thumb their noses at it, then you have a lawless society, despite what's on the books. Again, progressivism promotes all these things. Lack of virtue, anti-individualism, and anti-freedom. That's what Obamacare is about. Lack of individualism, lack of choice, lack of mobility, on and on and on. And so... My concern is, while we have a conservative movement, we have millions of people who, both from a cerebral and instinctive point of view, understand that the country is unraveling, understand that things are getting out of control, understand the federal government should mean do all these things that the federal government's doing, understand that the government takes too much of their money, understand uh, that their property rights are under attack, and on and on and on. We lack today, the serious intellectuals. 
to take on the progressives. We truly do. And you hear members of Congress. As I say, you heard Paul Ryan, weekend before last, going on all these shows, pressing the tax bill, talking like a leftist about class warfare. And he's supposed to be one of the intellectuals. You don't see these things discussed much. You don't see these things written much. It's as if they've surrendered completely. Where is the next Milton Friedman? Where is the next Tom Saul? Where is the next Bill Buckley? Where are they? Where are the Hayeks and the Mises? Where are they? Where are the great constitutionalists? Where are they? Tell me which website, which newspaper, which magazine, where do you find them? Where are their books? Where are they? There's very few of them left. It's very unfortunate. I'll be right back. This is Mark Levin wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Now back to the best of me. Tenured leftist, progressive professors, uh, and the turning out of so many people who despise American history. The reason for this is they do not want us to learn our history. They do not want us to learn from Jefferson and Washington and Madison and the others. So you dismiss them as slave owners and then you move on, right? To whom? Well, Karl Marx didn't own any slaves, apparently. But hundreds of millions of people have been enslaved as a result of Marxism, haven't they? You know, uh, in a fascinating letter that I've mentioned to you before, on uh, December 10, 1819, where Thomas Jefferson, I dug out this letter, where Thomas Jefferson was writing to John Adams, reflecting on the reason for the demise of the Roman Empire. He described the basic elements of liberty and good government with an emphasis on virtuous people. And they wrote beautifully back then. Jefferson wrote to Adams, I've been amusing myself latterly with reading the voluminous letters of Cicero. Cicero, who was a brilliant, brilliant man, a senator, among other things, in Rome, uh, who was killed because of his views, executed, if you will, tracked down and assassinated. He said, they certainly breathe the present effusions of an exalted patriot. With the parasite Caesar is left in odious contrast. When the enthusiasm, however, kindled by Cicero's pen and principles, subsides into cool reflection. I asked myself, what was that government which the virtues of Cicero were so zealous to restore and the ambition of Caesar to subvert? And if Caesar had been as virtuous as he was daring and sagacious, what could he, even in the plenitude of his his usurped power, have done to lead his fellow citizens into good government? I do not say to restore it because they never had it, from the rape of the Sabines to the ravages of the Caesars. If their people indeed 
had been like ours, enlightened, peaceable, and really free? The answer would be obvious. Restore independence to all your foreign conquests. Relieve Italy from the government of the rabble of Rome. And consult it as a nation entitled to self-government and do its will. But steeped in corruptive vice and venality, as the whole nation was, and nobody had done more than Caesar to corrupt it, what could even Cicero, Cato, Brutus have done? Had it been referred to them to establish a good government for their country? They had no ideas of government themselves, but of their degenerate senate. Not the people of liberty, but, but of the factious opposition of their tribunes. They had afterwards their Tituses, their Trajans, and so forth, who had the will to make them happy and the power to mold their government into a good and permanent form. But it would seem as if they could not see their way clearly to do it. No government can continue good but under the control of the people, and their people were so demoralized and depraved as to be incapable of exercising a wholesome control. Are we demoralized and depraved? When there are people who continue to vote for redistribution of wealth, to tax other people, to take their property, to massively expand welfare and entitlements, knowing that they will one way one day destroy our society? Are we depraved? I'll be back. This is the best of Mark Levin. Merry Christmas. Mark Levin, the most passionate conservative on radio. Talk with him now at 877-381-3811. Let's spend a little bit more time on this. I mean, I could spend a year on this, but spend a little more time on it, right? Now, now, we want to talk about sexual harassment. We'll go somewhere else. Seriously, I'm not doing that today. Progressivism is the antithesis of the principles set forth in the Declaration of Independence. That's why the early progressives, followed by their progeny, the later progressives, trashed the Declaration of Independence. Even when Barack Obama would, quote-unquote, quote from the Declaration of Independence, he would leave the parts out that referred to God. Well, how do you have natural law and natural rights if you don't have some belief beyond mankind? You can't. It doesn't technically mean you have to believe in a God or God. But you have to believe in something other than men, the collection of men, government. But that's not what the progressive believes. The progressive believes in making science out of utopia and impossibility. Very interesting when I hear the uh, the Marxists dressed up as uh, Black Lives Matter or uh, Antifa and so forth and so on. They like to talk about our founding fathers as slaveholders and nothing more, nothing less. Yet they embrace an ideology, Marxism, that has resulted in the in the in the genocidal murder, mass murder of tens of millions of human beings. In modern history, tens of millions of human beings. There's not a Marxist society on the face of the earth even today, whether you look at Cuba or Venezuela 
or even China or North Korea. Uh, that isn't repressive and doesn't need a police state. Well, why do you need a police state? If you're a Marxist, why, do you, why, why does there need to be a police state if everybody's equal and everybody's treated equally? Because Marxism is a bad idea because it is a bad abstraction. It's phony. And it has to be imposed on people. It has to be imposed on people. Now, what I'm about to say might be considered very extreme, but it's not extreme in the least. Progressivism is the bastard child of Marxism. That's what it is. Many of the old progressives were very supportive of the old Soviet Union. Certainly at the beginning, John Dewey was. Many of them were taken with Marx and Engels in their writings in the 1800s. Like Crowley, a progressive intellectual. And what, what are our debates today as a society all about? Radical egalitarianism, not liberty and individualism. How the rich are going to pay their fair share, how the rich are going to pay more. There's endless talk about class warfare. This is Marxism. That's what it is. Economic classes, economic warfare. History is nothing more or less than human existence as it applies to an economic order. Well, of course, that's preposterous, but that's what it is. That's what it is. And when liberty is mentioned by the left, which is almost never, they mean something else, something different than you and I mean. Something much different than you and I mean. By liberty, the left means, <clears throat> and this could go on and on too, but I'm going to limit it. By liberty, for the left, it means equality. By liberty, for us, it means individualism. By liberty, for the left, it means positive action, affirmative action by the government. By liberty, for us, it means a limited government that is not molesting us. By liberty to the left, it means free health care. That is to the progressive. Liberty to you and me means choices, competition, markets. Then I can go down the list. So the extent they raise liberty at all they raise it in the context of a Marxist ideology. Watered down, I give you that, watered down, but nonetheless, a Marxist ideology. Now, the organizations that front for them, like Media Matters, Democracy Now!, and so forth and so on, they would say, you're full of it. You're not full of it. They would say, you're taking them out of context. You're not taking them out of context. Progressivism is the bastard child of Marxism. Now, I started the program by saying that progressivism 
which now is the wholly owned ideology of the Democrat Party and partially the Republican Party, uh, that progressivism and constitutionalism are incompatible. Well, of course they're incompatible. Separation of powers, limited powers of those federal branches that are to be separated, federalism as compelled by the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, uh, and on and on. Because progressivism, progressivism requires an iron-fisted, centralized state that centralizes decision-making <clears> on <throat> the notion that they can make scientific decisions. And by scientific, I don't mean chemistry. Scientific in terms of uh, logic and rationality and, and social engineering and experiments. And you can't do that if people are free to make their own decisions. You need a consensus position, whether there is one or not. It's way too untidy. It's way too sloppy to allow individuals to go their own way. The way you create a paradise is by telling individuals the way they need to go for the good of society. You've heard them talk about this all the time, for the public good, for the general welfare, and on and on and on. By the way, all of this is discussed in Rediscovering Americanism, but I'm not going to read you the book. I'm just looking at what's going on in our country today. I mean, you got Gillibrand and Schumer and McConnell and these people. In a, where the hell did we go wrong? And we know where we went wrong. When you look at the Constitution, ladies and gentlemen, it's such a crucial document. The Constitution is an effort by our founders. We call them framers, as the framers of the Constitution, but it's an effort by our founders to take the principles, the truisms of the Declaration of Independence and create a government in which those principles are manifest are manifest, where those principles are not merely protected, but they're promoted, <coughs> excuse me, they're nurtured. Now, that's not what we have today in any way. Centralized decision-making. The left loves it when they get five to four decisions on the Supreme Court that impose their will, because there's no way to turn them around. The progressives love government by judicial fiat if they agree with the decision. The progressives love government by the administrative state if they agree with what that administrative state is doing. The progressives love the electoral college if their people get elected. They love the popular vote if their people get elected. But they hate it all if they can't advance their agenda. Nothing's permanent. Not traditions, not customs, not institutions. Nothing. The world began today. So forget about the Constitution. Who cares about the Declaration? The old guys, they were slaves as old white guys. What do they have to offer? Nothing whatsoever. Nothing. Trash successful people in the current society. You've got to trash them. You've got to trash the rich. You've got to trash 
the smart people. I've got to trash all of them because they demonstrate something you don't want demonstrated, which is you can't succeed in this society. You can make money. You can invent things. You can produce things. You can do all kinds of wonderful things. So you have to destroy them or besmirch them. The only rich people, the only successful people, let me put it that way, that the progressive likes are successful people who fund and support them. Who fund and support them. What's happening in our country today, I believe, is the unraveling of all these founding ideas. And the problem is we all know where this will take us. You know, we're not the first great society. I think we're the greatest society that ever existed, but we're not the first great society. There have been others, but they don't exist anymore. What happened to Athens? What happened to Rome? What's happening to the United States? Why don't we learn? Why don't we recognize that we're blessed? Why don't we look around us and realize that we are such a prosperous society, and not just in terms of materials. We're just a prosperous society, tolerant society, a beneficent society, a thoughtful society. Being torn asunder by those who are of the opposite view and the opposite behavior. Why don't we leave people in the private sector alone? Why don't we leave individuals alone? Why don't we stop categorizing people by race? Why don't we stop categorizing people by wealth, by age, by anything? And the reason's simple. <coughs> the government likes it this way. Balkanization's good for the government. A peaceful, well-working society where people are basically left alone to interact with each other, to participate voluntarily in our economic system, to offer each other products and services and so forth and so on, is a society the progressive cannot abide. Because they have better ideas and they intend to impose them on us. That's why I said, progressivism is the bastard child of Marxism. I'll be right back. This is Mark Levin wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Now back to the best of me. You know, not many colleges can claim that they're 100% financially independent from both federal and state governments. In fact... I can think of only one college in the entire country that refuses government funding of every kind. Not one penny, and that's Hillsdale College. Now, why? Because government money comes with strings, and the Hillsdale refuses to have government bureaucrats dictate what and how they must teach or run their campus. And from their beginning in 1844, Hillsdale has provided a world-class education that upholds America's founding principles and preserves the blessings of civil and religious liberty, like we've been talking about. 
Everything Hillsdale does, from the financial aid that 97% of its students receive, to the completely free online courses it offers you, depends on generous donors who recognize the worth of independence. Financial freedom preserves the integrity and excellence of a Hillsdale liberal arts education, attracting the nation's brightest students in scores of fields of study, from music to biology to business. Hillsdale College teaches their students to pursue truth and defend liberty. Learn more about how Hillsdale College helps all of us become better, more independent citizens, and how you can help Hillsdale further freedom. Go to levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. One of the reasons I could never be a so-called populist, never, ever, is because it is potentially an attack on the individual, republicanism, and the principles of the founding. Nothing about populism in the Constitution. Nothing about populism in the Declaration. That's why they have to point to Andrew Jackson. That's why they have to condemn the founders. And the left, the progressives, they embrace this notion of populism as a way of gaining power. And then, of course, they embrace the entire notion of totalitarianism. Now, self-government may on the whole, as this great philosopher Isaac Berlin wrote, Isaiah Berlin, I'm sorry, self-government may on the whole provide a better guarantee of the preservation of civil liberties than that of the regimes, and has been defended as such by libertarians. Listen, but there's no necessary connection between individual liberty and democracy. There's no, let me put a fine point in it, there's no necessary connection between individual liberty and democratic rule. Look at your constitution. Your constitution rejects democratic rule. Your constitution does not allow for the direct election of presidents or vice presidents. Your original constitution does not allow for the direct election of senators. State legislatures were to choose senators. Your constitution does not allow for the direct election of federal judges. Your constitution provides for only one area of the government where there's a direct election. That's the House of Representatives. Nothing more, nothing less. They believed in representative government. They believed in small, limited government through representation, the consent of the government. Exactly the opposite of what populists argue for. That the central government should get involved in the economy, but get involved in the economy in ways that they like. Or that the will of the people, quote unquote, should be the end all and be all. Really? Is that what the Declaration says? Doesn't it talk about every individual human being having unalienable rights, not as a result of democracy or populism, but as God-given rights to each and every one of us that nobody can take and nobody can grant, that it's bigger than human beings. That it's bigger than human beings. There is no necessary connection between individual liberty and democratic rule. We don't believe in democratic rule. We believe in republicanism with a little r. Constitutionalism. 
no matter how many times I say it, no matter how many times and how many forms I discuss it, people just don't embrace it. They just don't. Remember what else the founders talked about? Factions. They hated factions. And yet we have people, including pseudo-conservatives, progressives, they're all about creating factions. Some on race, some on wealth, and so forth and so on. We'll get into other things as well. I'll be right back. Underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. This is the best of Mark Levin. Merry Christmas. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 54% of the American people believe that uh, Mr. Mueller's investigation is partisan. Mr. Mueller's investigation is not an investigation. Mr. Mueller is on a seek and destroy mission. Mr. Mueller has no interest in the pursuit of justice. He would have shut this operation down already and said there is no collusion between the Trump administration and Russia. Mr. Mueller, in my view, is, I don't care what he was before, he's demonstrated himself to be disreputable. Jim Comey has further demonstrated himself to have obstructed justice. Now, what do I mean? I mean in the broadest sense. Mr. Comey was not pursuing justice in the investigation of Hillary Clinton. He was pursuing a result to clear her. The Clinton campaign blames Comey, among others, for her loss. But she should thank Comey for her failure to have been indicted. If you can charge Michael Flynn, then Hillary Clinton should be in Sing Sing and she should be there for life. There is breaking news tonight. There is breaking news tonight. And among others, our buddy Paul Bedard, who is a real journalist over at the Washington Examiner, has obtained a copy um, from Senator Ron Johnson, who's really doing a hell of a job, quite frankly, chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, which is a an edited version an extensively edited version of a document that uh, Comey used during his press conference. And he writes, The FBI did far more editing of former FBI Director James Comey's statement on their probe of Hillary Rodham Clinton's private email server than previously known. Edits that erased serious concerns the FBI initially had, according to a key senator. In documents provided by Senator Ron Johnson, Chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, There were three major edits to Comey's statement that seemed to absolve Clinton. By the way, those of you on hold, hang in there. We'll get to you. The changes included reducing Clinton's culpability in the scandal, 
removing references to the intelligence community's role in the probe, and downgrading the likelihood that spies had penetrated Clinton's private server stuck in the basement of her New York home. Senator Johnson is now demanding that everybody connected to the process of writing and editing Comey's statement be identified. We're asking for everyone that edited the speech, said a committee official. He's also looking into the pro-Clinton, anti-President Trump bias in the probe. To show the changes in the statement, Johnson produced a copy of Comey's original statement with the edits that he planned to give in a May 2016 closing out his investigation. They're dramatic and they show the FBI went soft on Clinton. Initially, the only major edit revealed was that FBI insiders cut out the reference to Clinton being grossly negligent, but it went much further. For example, they cut out Comey's initial plan to refer to the sheer volume, quote-unquote, of email on Clinton's server. Johnson said that was in an effort to, quote, de-emphasize the amount of classified information, unquote, held on Clinton's private server. Johnson's letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray also cited another major edit. The edited version also contained a sentence that read, This is especially concerning because all of these emails were housed on servers not supported by full-time security staff like those found at the departments and agencies of the U.S. government. Comey did not use that sentence in his final statement. Comey was also planning to give credit to the intelligence community for helping in the Clinton probe. But that was cut out. And there were edits, said Johnson, to downgrade the likelihood that hostile actors penetrated Secretary Clinton's private server. Before it said, we also assessed that Secretary Clinton's use of private email, of the private email domain, was both known by a large number of people and readily apparent. Given the combination of factors, we assess it is reasonably likely that hostile actors gained access to Secretary Clinton's private email account. But after the edits, it said, given that combination of factors, we assess it's possible that hostile actors gained access to Secretary Clinton's personal email account. So here's the point. All across the spectrum of this so-called investigation, at every turn, there was an effort to soften language. There was an effort to downplay her conduct. To the point at which... When James Comey gave his comments at that infamous press conference, he was lying through his teeth. He had her dead the rights, and they hadn't even interviewed her yet. And they hadn't even interviewed about 20 or two dozen of their people yet. And they, haven't gone th- and they hadn't gone through the laptops, the uh, relevant laptops yet. He still had enough. When he was formulating his, his statement to clear her two months before they even interviewed her. And yesterday, Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, when pressed hard to appoint a special counsel to investigate the conduct of the senior level of the FBI, to investigate the conduct of those involved in the Hillary Clinton investigation, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. In the case of Donald Trump, when they didn't even have collusion, when collusion isn't even an actual crime, no crime, no evidence of a crime, no evidence of collusion, he appointed a special counsel. He named his good old buddy Mueller, who's also the good old buddy of Comey. Now, ladies and gentlemen, 
as somebody who was a chief of staff at the Department of Justice, the chief of staff to an attorney general of the United States, I can tell you emphatically that I don't believe anything like this has ever happened before. I don't believe anything like this has happened before. And keep in mind, James Comey is a confessed and also a notorious leaker. Yes, he is. And then for Rod Rosenstein to appoint Comey's buddy, Mueller, to head up the special counsel investigation. And what does Mueller do? He hires 16 prosecutors. Nine of them are openly partisan for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Nine of them are openly hostile to Donald Trump and Trump world. Nine of them who gave donations to the Hillary Clinton campaign and or the Barack Obama campaign. One of them is number one deputy who actually attended the Hillary Clinton victory party, some victory. And one of them, the same man, Weissman, who engaged Sally Yates, the Obama holdover acting attorney general until Jeff Sessions was confirmed, for her obstruction of the president of the United States when he needed his attorney general to defend his executive order, the second iteration of which was upheld by the Supreme Court on a 7-2 and two vote. Weissman, the number two guy, the Mueller, cheered her on for her obstruction of the president of the United States. And one of the nine actually represented the Clinton Foundation at one point in her career. These are the objective special counsel prosecutors hired by Mr. Mueller, James Comey's buddy, Rod Rosenstein's buddy, to conduct an independent investigation. So important was an independent investigation, they appoint a special counsel. Could it be less independent, ladies and gentlemen? And that's on the prosecutor side. Who was the number one investigator, the lead investigator on the Clinton matter for James Comey? That's right, this guy Strzok, who was cheating on his wife with another FBI agent. And the texts speak for themselves. And they are very troubling. Who was the chief FBI investigator after Comey for Mueller as special counsel? Who did he select that is as a chief investigator. The same guy. Just as a practical matter, how can you have that FBI agent working for you, Mueller, when he worked for Comey and then claim you're independent? This is, as I said, a silent coup. Others have picked up on the phrase, and good for them. I don't even care anymore. I will stand my ground with what I've argued. You can go on the Internet. You can say who has said what and who's explained it and when, how, and first. This is the silent coup that's going on. You have a cabal of liberal Democrats at the highest level of the FBI and in many parts of the, Dem of the uh, Department of Justice. It's not the first time. You have the current deputy director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation whose wife is a liberal Democrat, ran for the state Senate in Virginia, was backed by the governor of Virginia, who's an old bagman of Hillary Clinton's. You have a former associate deputy attorney general who actually served on Rod Rosenstein's staff and also served on the prior deputy attorney general staff, 
In other words, a very senior level position. I know I used to hold a position like that before I became chief of staff. He was very interested in what Fusion GPS had to say about Donald Trump. Fusion GPS, which received funds from the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democrat National Committee, laundered through a law firm, a lawyer by the name of Mark Elias, hired Fusion GPS, which in turn hired an ex-British spy, who in turn used Kremlin apparatchiks, among others, to write this phony 35-page document that appears to have been used by the FBI, probably this same jerk, to launch an investigation of now the sitting president of the United States, resulting in a special counsel investigation. And I believe it was used not once but twice, the second time successfully to secure a FISA warrant to conduct political domestic surveillance of individuals associated with the Republican presidential candidate, eventually the president-elect Donald Trump. This is big stuff. Big stuff. We have a special counsel investigating a non-existent crime. And Mr. Rod Rosenstein, and quite frankly, the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, cannot find their way. Both appointed by a Republican, both appointed by this president, cannot find a way to appoint a special counsel to investigate what the FBI has been doing and to investigate what the Justice Department's been doing. I have never seen anything like this. Never. <coughs> have you? Here's a word of warning to all of us, to all of you. If we do not hold the House, if we do not hold the House of Representatives, these investigations will be killed. These investigations go to the core of the Republic. I was thinking of these investigations when I did the first hour of the program. The complete lack of virtue, the lawlessness. The ends justify the means in the pursuit of progressivism. That means electing progressives, bastardizing the law, turning it on its head. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We lose the House of Representatives, these investigations into these truly heinous events won't ever see the light of day. They'll be killed. And in their place will be endless efforts to impeach the President of the United States. To impeach the President of the United States who is the victim here. Let me repeat that. To try and impeach the President of the United States who is the victim of this. And then as I said the other day, overarching all of this, the FBI... Numerous DOJ prosecutors in the media have been played by the Russians. Now, don't get me wrong. They don't mind being played by the Russians. They just don't know they've been played by the Russians. There was no Trump collusion with Russia. That was a concoction 
a concoction of Kremlin apparatchiks feeding opposition researchers, quote-unquote, funded by Hillary Clinton's campaign in the DNC. The sickening irony of all this is that the Democrat Party and their operators at the top levels of the FBI and parts of the Justice Department and in the Special Counsel's Office, they're the ones who've been colluding with the Russians, wittingly and unwittingly, directly and indirectly. Wouldn't you think by now, ladies and gentlemen, with thousands of reporters investigating who hate Donald Trump, with hundreds of members of Congress investigating who hate Donald Trump, with multiple committees of Congress investigating who hate Donald Trump, that if there was one scintilla, one scintilla of evidence that Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, her husband, their cousins, their whatever, if there was one scintilla of evidence that they colluded with Putin on this election, that by now we would have it? Where is it, Mr. Mueller? Where is it, Mr. Comey? Where is it, New York Times and Washington Post? Where is it, Mr. Schiff? Where is it, Mr. Warner? Spit it out. Show it to us. We want to see it, and we want to see it right now. But they can't. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. What does exist is one of the most corrupt efforts by the senior levels of the FBI, by certain prosecutors at the Department of Justice and in the Special Counsel's Office, and I may add, the senior levels of our intelligence agencies to try and take out a candidate and now to try and take out a president. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. you something in National Union. You know, I was very critical of them the other day. And they deserved it, in my humble opinion. But they also deserve some praise here. In their editorial, yes, investigate the investigators. I do not believe that Mr. Mueller will be fired. I do believe that there needs to be investigation of what's been taking place at the highest levels of the FBI. I believe that will lead to Jim Comey. I also believe it will eventually lead to Mr. Mueller, a former FBI director. I hope it doesn't lead to Mr. Rod Rosenstein. I can't think of any other reason why he won't do it. You've got a director, the, a deputy director of the FBI as well, Andrew McCabe, who needs to be examined in my humble opinion. More on this when I return. This is Mark Levin wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Now back to the best of me. If you turn off your radio and open the window, you can probably hear him straight from the studio. Call Mark Levin at 877-381-3811. I want to thank all of you, my wonderful audience, for being there. Without you, this show wouldn't exist. But I also want to thank our wonderful sponsors. We have great advertisers on this show, and they try to do everything possible 
to accommodate you, to provide you with good services and products at a fair price. And they also make their show possible. This isn't government-subsidized radio. This is a commercial enterprise. And we have wonderful sponsors who have been with us for a long time. Life is stressful, even worse than the IRS is after you for back taxes. You agonize when they'll show up, seize your bank account, put a lien on your home, or garnish your wages. It was even worse for Lori. Lori was engaged, but she knew bringing 25 grand of IRS debt into the marriage was no way to start her new life. Lori did something really smart. She called Optima Tax Relief. Now, Optima stepped between Lori and the IRS, analyzed her case, and uncovered some game-changing facts that allowed them to settle her case in her favor. You know, when Optima told Lori that her IRS problems were over, she called it the happiest call of her life, and her wedding was back on. Optima has resolved over half a billion dollars in tax debt for their clients. They're rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau. And getting your life back starts the moment you call Optima for your free consultation. So if I were you, I'd call them now. Call 800-499-6300, 800-499-6300. That's 800-499-6300. The uh, National Review editorial <clears throat> says, yes, investigate the investigators. The Department of Justice and the FBI are developing a credibility problem. The last two weeks have brought a blizzard of revelations about the anti-Trump political predilections of top FBI officials and prosecutors in special counsel Robert Mueller's office, perhaps none more eye-popping than a just-revealed text from Peter Strozak, a top FBI intelligence agent. In August 2016, Strozak, who played a key, a, a lead investigator role in the Hillary Clinton emails investigation, flatly stated, that the FBI could not, quote, take that risk, unquote, referring to the possibility that Donald Trump might be elected president of the United States. He made the statement in a message to Lisa Page, a bureau lawyer with whom he was having an extramarital affair. Stroke referred to an alternative FBI path, quote, unquote, regarding Trump's, quote, unlikely, unquote, election that Page had proposed during a meeting they'd attended in Andy's office meaning Deputy Director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, the Bureau's number two official, second only to then-Director James Comey. While more context is necessary to understand the meaning of the text and what transpired in, the, in the McCabe's office, the message raises the possibility that top Bureau officials were infecting investigations with their personal political views. This would be a concern in any circumstance, but especially in this one, the FBI's Clinton email and Trump-Russia investigations have been extremely fraught politically, with the latter morphing into Mueller's Russia probe, which conceivably could result in impeachment referral. Now, around the time of FBI agent Stroke's message, the FBI and the Obama Justice Department had come into possession of the anti-Trump dossier compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele. Now, that was opposition research commissioned by the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee through their lawyers. They had retained a research company, Fusion GPS, which hired Steele, who evidently paid Russian sources for what appears to be dodgy information. We now know that one of Fusion's point people in the project was a Russian analyst named Nellie Orr, the wife of Bruce Orr. Who's he? 
the Obama Justice Department's Associate Deputy Attorney General. He was the right hand of Sally Yates, the famously anti-Trump Deputy Attorney General, who was eventually and justifiably fired by Trump for insubordination when she was inherited as the Acting Attorney General. Bruce Orr held meetings with Steele and Fusion, Fusion founder Glenn Simpson, and has now been demoted uh, over them. During the summer of 2016, the Justice Department and the Bureau sought a warrant from a secret federal court and to conduct surveillance of a Trump campaign official. It is reported that agents used information from that dossier, funded by the Clinton campaign and the DNC, to obtain the warrant, even though as recently as March in 2017, then-Director Comey dismissed Steele's work as salacious and unverified in congressional testimony. Let me stop there. Where is the federal judge? who is serving as the judge at the FISA court. Where is she? Where is she? Is she in the witness protection program? Where is she? Why isn't she taking steps now? Taking steps now, I don't just mean an admonishment, taking steps now to right a wrong. Why isn't she punishing the individual in the FBI the individual at the Justice Department who is responsible for bamboozling her. Let me go on. For months, the House Intelligence Committee has been pressing for answers about whether and how this Clinton campaign document was used to obtain the authority for the surveillance. The Justice Department and the FBI won't answer and refuse to produce the warrant. They won't answer to an Article One entity created by our Constitution, Congress. Everything that has happened in the Trump probe stands out against a backdrop of leniency to the Clinton investigation. While Mueller has prosecuted two Trump associates for lying to the FBI, the Obama Justice Department gave a pass to Mrs. Clinton and her subordinates, who gave the FBI misinformation about such key matters as whether Clinton understood markings and classified documents, and whether her aides knew about her homebrew server system during their State Department service. Mueller's team conducted a pre-dawn raid at gunpoint in executing a search warrant on Paul Manafort's home while Manafort was cooperating with congressional committees. When it came to the Clinton case, though, the Justice Department not only eschewed search warrants or even mere subpoenas, but they never even took possession of the DNC server alleged to have been hacked by the Russian operatives. The irregularities in the Clinton emails investigation are breathtaking. The authority used a grand jury to compel the production of key physical evidence. The Justice Department's collaboration with defense lawyers to restrict the FBI's ability to pursue obvious lines of inquiry and examine digital evidence. Immunity grants to suspects who should have been charged with crimes and pressured to cooperate. Allowing subjects of the investigation to be present for each other's FBI interviews and even to act as lawyers for Clinton in violation of legal and ethical rules. Comey's preparation of a statement exonerating Clinton months before the investigation was complete and key witnesses, including Clinton herself, were even interviewed. And the shameful tarmac meeting between Obama Attorney General Loretta Lynch and Mrs. Clinton's husband just days before Mrs. Clinton sat for a perfunctory FBI interview, after which Comey announced the decision not to charge her. We believe that Russia's interference in the election is worth investigating and that dismissing Robert Mueller would be a mistake. 
both politically and on the merits, they write at National Review. Yet there are enough questions about the handling of the Clinton and Trump matters that a thorough fact-finding investigation is warranted and one of greater independence and scope that we are likely to get from the Department of Justice's Obama-appointed Inspector General. The Department needs to appoint a scrupulous, well-regarded United States attorney from outside the Washington area to scrutinize the conduct of the Justice Department and the FBI in connection with the 2016 election. There now is enough of a cloud around these investigations, and that department owes the public nothing less. I don't have a problem with the appointment of a U.S. attorney outside uh, Washington, D.C. I do find it to form over substance, uh, as opposed to appointing a special counsel. I mean, I don't know what directives they would give this U.S. attorney. They'd be any different than they would give a special counsel. Moreover, the only other difference I have is uh, much of this also has to do with the nature of the individuals chosen by Mueller. Mueller is mentioned in that editorial, and I think rightly so. Mr. Weissman shouldn't be anywhere near the Trump investigation, nor should the other eight Democrat operatives, in my humble opinion, particularly the one that used to represent the Clinton Foundation. And, you know, I keep hearing, well, Mr. Mueller was a Republican. Let me tell you what kind of Mr. Republican Mr. Mueller was. When Mr. Mueller came up to be FBI director during the course of the Obama administration, he'd been U.S. attorney, I believe, in San Francisco. And one of the people who spoke on behalf, testified on behalf of his character and his credibility, was Barbara Boxer. That's what kind of Republican Mr. Mueller is. In other words, he's a fraud. And look at his actions now. We don't need to know about his resume. Look at his actions now. They're pathetic. Pathetic! Dan, Springfield, Missouri, the great KSGF. Go! Mark, pleasure to talk to you, sir. I got to tell you. you, when you were talking about the progressivist agenda and having to get rid of identity politics, this identifying people by gender, race, ethnicity, it's got to go because it makes all of our jobs harder. I work at a, at a great university, and I got called in today by the boss, and he said, well, we've had complaints about you from some women in your class. That's your gender bias. And I said, well, what does that mean? Oh, well, they didn't want me to tell you. I said, well, how am I supposed to fix it if you're not going to tell me what I'm supposed to do wrong? Well, it went on from there. We, they said they didn't feel safe, so we had to call you in. I said, well, you know, we've been told for 35, 40 years that we have to, as educators, push young women and protect them and encourage them because they're underrepresented. We have a glass ceiling. And I said, you know what? If that idea has any salt at all in it, then in education, where we have a great dearth of young men going into the career, we need to protect our young men. We need to encourage them and move them forward. I said, matter of fact, boss, I didn't do that. Everybody gets great based on not what they look like, who they are, what color they are, but what they do, how they perform. Mm -hmm. And I said, I had one man in a class of 20-some women, and I said, you know what? He was treated exactly the same as everybody else. And if you want me to fix something in my class, you damn well need to tell me what I did wrong. Because if it's going to be this shady, oh, there's been a complaint, we can't say, we don't know, they aren't coming forward, then, you know, I don't want to hear you come to me again and saying, you didn't fix it. You didn't fix it. We told you and you didn't do better. All right, my friend. I appreciate it.
Running up against the clock. Let me grab James quickly in Kansas. Sirius Satellite, go. Hey, uh, I don't know if you're going to be able to squeeze me in, Mark, but, you know, I want to give credit where it's due, and, and your opening monologue was, was absolutely fantastic. And honestly, it's true, conservatism is dead. And it's, it's no, no, that's to, not what I said. said that there were I didn't say conservatism is dead. Matter of fact, I said there is a conservative movement, and it, and it has been strong. It's elected a lot of Republicans. What I said is the intellectual part of conservatism is weak, if not dead. And I, and I completely agree with you there, and I think it's because I, I don't understand how individualism can go up against the collective. I don't understand how we can band together to defeat this virus of an ideology of Marxism and cultural Marxism as individuals. And I think we're seeing the rise of neo-reaction. That's not... Your formulation is wrong. We're not going up against Marxism as individuals. We have a constitutional republic. We're fighting the whatever creation, whatever institution Marxism creates. And Marx himself and Engels himself were unclear about it. As a matter of fact, Lenin, after the Russian Revolution, said, okay, now what? Marx doesn't tell us what to do. Because eventually, you know, the state is supposed to wither away. What I'm talking about is the ideology of progressivism versus the belief system and principles and the life lessons of Americanism. It's a battle of ideas. No, when we're fighting progressivism, we fight it with constitutionalism. When we fight the ideas, we need to fight the ideas. ...equip us to actively take out these ideas. McCarthy had the right idea. But because of all of this bureaucracy and, and, and people feeling offended, we can't actually expose, call these people out and, and depose them. And, and, and well, We can call them out and challenge them. It's that very few do. Well, when I talk I, about Article 5, when I talk about Article 5 Convention of States, which is in the Constitution, which was discussed at the Constitutional Convention, albeit briefly, which has a, a, a history, these states meeting, getting together, having conferences, trying to figure out how to, how to work their way through problems, uh, it is dismissed as some kind of a radical, goofy idea by think tanks in Washington, D.C. It is dismissed. I mean, it, it's not even supported. The Koch brothers support it? No. Does Cato Institute support it? No. Does the Heritage Foundation support it? No. Does AEI support it? No. I can go all down the list of the conservative and libertarian organizations who are entrenched in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> who keep on pushing out white papers, and I like a lot of them. They put out a, good, a lot of good information. But when it actually comes to thinking about and pursuing ways to, to, to effectuate the kind of things that they write about, they, uh, they won't do it. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. This is the best of Mark Levin. Merry Christmas. So I'm getting a cold. And I think to myself, why am I here? We're not going to be in Florida. Seriously. What the hell am I doing here? Like a schmo. Then it's going to snow. I'm going to... Who does this? I do this. Ask me why. I don't know why. You know, I love my car. I love our 2010 Camaro. That was the first year the Camaro came out again. And we got a really hot one, too. But, you know, it's reached the age where things are starting to go wrong. 
But here's the thing. I don't worry about those problems anymore, though. Not since I got extended vehicle service protection from CarShield. Getting covered by CarShield is a really great idea. It's affordable protection that can save you thousands of dollars for a covered repair. Did you know a new fuel pump costs over $500? Replacing a water pump's over 1000 If you need repairs to uh, a control arm or a torque converter, do you know what those are, Mr. Producer? I don't know what they are, but they're there. Stuff most of us never heard of until it breaks. Now, we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars to fix it. Now, they even have plans that cover your car's computer, GPS, electronics, and a lot more. CarShield's the ultimate in extended coverage. They get your favorite mechanic or dealership paid directly. You know, that really is important. You know, I don't know if you've had other kinds of insurance on your cars and so forth. And in order to get paid, though, you'll pay the bill. Then they get around to reimbursing you. CarShield says, no, we'll pay them directly. That's important. Save yourself from high repair bills. Get covered by CarShield like I did before something goes wrong. Sign up today and get 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is in the shop. Call 800-CAR-6100. 800-CAR-6100. Mention Levin. Levin. Or visit CarShield.com. CarShield.com. Use code Levin and you'll save 10%. That's CarShield.com. Code L-E-V-I-N. Or 800 car 6100 code Levin. A deductible may apply. There's a lot going on out there, ladies and gentlemen. First hour was heavy on the philosophy, but I do enjoy it, and I know many of you do. When I do my book signings, you tell me that. Second hour was heavy on the corruption that's taking place for the purpose of taking out Donald Trump. Let's be blunt. Next hour, I'm ready. I'm ready. But you're going to have to wait to hear what I talk about. I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. You know what, folks? In about 10 or 15 minutes, I have a surprise guest for you. You'll never, you'll never guess. You'll never guess. I'll give you some time to Google the, the gentleman's name. Jonathan Lee Iverson. We're going to have some fun. We're going to have a good time. Jonathan Lee Iverson. See who Jonathan Lee Iverson is. Because he'll be with us shortly. Uh, I met him several months ago through my wife and he absolutely fascinated me. I had time to speak to him and uh, I wanted to share uh, him with you because I think you'll find him fascinating too. I can't keep it secret here, Mr. Producer. He, he was the, I, what do they call him, the center ring re- leader? He was the ringmaster, the ringmaster of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey, which apparently doesn't exist anymore. But he was the ringmaster. And he's an African-American gentleman with quite a story. 
But man, can he sing, he can dance, and it's even more than that. Very charismatic, and he's got a wonderful story. So I want you to meet the last, the last, uh, of the, because Barnum and Bailey, Ringling Brothers doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, the last of such gentlemen. And, uh, and I would say, if not the best, certainly one of the best. But I think you'll really enjoy it. I really do. So stick with us. Sort of a holiday thing. I'll tell you what's not a holiday thing. Remember Jackie Spear? She gave testimony that she was sexually harassed when she was a staffer in Congress. Now she's a congresswoman in Congress. And now she wants to, she says, invoke the 25th Amendment to the Constitution to remove Trump. I want you to hear what she asked. Anybody who says we should invoke the 25th Amendment is an idiot. And that then would include Jackie Spear. Now, why are they idiots? Because it's a simple matter of mathematics. Simple matter of mathematics. For the House of Representatives to impeach a president, it is a majority vote. And it goes to the Senate for trial and removal or not. Ultimately, for the 25th Amendment process to take effect, it requires a two-thirds vote of the House and the Senate. So she's an idiot right off the top. But now, now I know why they set this whole sexual harassment thing up. They've been harassing, harassing sexually endlessly on Capitol Hill. It's pervasive. They harass each other. They harass their staff. They harass strangers. Strangers harass their... All kinds of weird crap going on in our Roman Congress. All comes up all of a sudden. Doesn't come up under Bill Clinton's presidency, no. Doesn't come up under Barack Obama's presidency, no. Suddenly, there's an epiphany. And the epiphany occurs when they're trying to get rid of Trump, and they want to bring up all the allegations against Trump. So it turns out Jackie Spear really was politicizing the issue. Unfortunately. Cut six. Excuse me. Cut eight. Go. Well, I've been speaking out about the uh, invocation of the 25th Amendment since early this year. Because I do Since early this year. That means upon or nearly upon Donald Trump's inauguration, his swearing in as president, Jackie Spear has been saying he needs to be removed under the 25th Amendment. And she wants to be, wants to get a pat on the back for it. Oh, wow, you were ahead of everybody. Go ahead. Uh, is not equipped to do the job. When he lashed out at Kim Jong-un and said we, he wasn't yet going to feel the fire and fury, I mean, he was inciting an international incident. No, he, he was... wasn't inciting an international anything, genius. If you wanted to invoke the 25th Amendment, and you don't get to invoke the 25th Amendment, that's not the process. These people even read the Constitution. And why do progressives even care about the Constitution? Her pal, Barack Melhouse Benito Obama, he was the one provoking by appeasing the North Koreans and by subsidizing and paying the Iranians. Sounds to me like Obama's the kook. Go ahead. Fighting nuclear war. And the 25th Amendment is there to be invoked by the vice president and a majority of the members of the cabinet if the president... Well, is... stop right there. So how would you invoke it? You're not even coherent. But Alison Camerata, formerly of Fox, and now at CNN, she's enlightened. Go ahead. 
incapacitated. But you think the president is incapacitated? You think the pre that President Trump is mentally unfit somehow? I do believe that he does not uh, conduct himself in a manner that is consistent with the presidency. So of the she's a liberal, and she doesn't believe he should be president. There you go. That's it. Early last year, she said, we should, I, I wanted to invoke the 25th Amendment, which she cannot do. Uh, and moreover, she says it's because he's provoking the Nimrod who runs North Korea. She's got it all backwards. But, you know, she's aiding and abetting the Nimrod who runs North Korea, isn't she? Cut nine, go. But just help us understand that, because impetuous is not incapacitated. So why are you able to connect these in your mind? Well, let me just say this. Good for Alison Camerata. My guess is she'll be fired in a few days by CNN. Go ahead. Connect them, because he has his finger on the nuclear button. Oh, he is okay. in a position to make a decision for us to attack another country with a nuclear weapon. Mm. And if you get insulted and then have to lash out at people. Does this woman sound like a fool? Talk about mental incapacitation. No offense. You liberals aren't the only ones who can throw those phrases around, but Jackie Spirit, you sound like you have a screw loose. You sound like you have more than a screw loose. Go ahead. Done with foreign leaders. He's done it with Kim Jong-un. He's done it with others. Uh, that is not someone that I believe has the capacity to do the job. Senator Corker has made the same comment. Oh, well, Senator Corker. Well, we all have to rely on Senator Corker, don't we? Go ahead. The others have commented about that as well. You know, it's one of those issues that no one really wants to talk about. But oh, you never stop talking, and you never stop talking about it. Oh, yes, CNN has had whole shows on it with the idiot Brian Stelter, among others, and the other idiot, Don Lemon. And by the way, idiot is the word that should precede any mention of a host on CNN. Go ahead. Ability to talk about it because we are, in fact, trying to guard the country against um, war that is... No, you're not. You voted, you voted to arm Iran with nuclear weapons. You're a fraud. That's what you are, a fraud. Go ahead. But look, the vice president is not going to invoke the 25th Amendment. I mean, so where do you go from here? Well, I don't know that that's actually going to be the case. I think oh, it's and uh, who's mentally off here? Seriously. No, no, I think Mike Pence may actually do. Oh, yeah, he might do it. He might. And, the, and, the, and she doesn't even understand that you need two-thirds in the House. I, I, listen, I'm warning you, America... If they take the House, I said, at the day after the election, they're going after him. <clears throat> all these investigations, the corruption at the top of the FBI and so forth, they're all going to go away. All of a sudden, they're going to turn this into an impeachment effort. And so those of you say, hey, let's go third party. Hey, I have an idea. We should go third party. Well, who's we? What are you going to do? We, you know, we. You, him, her, her, her. What about you? No, no. We should go third party. Really? <clears throat> Let me tell you why I'm going to vote Republican. Not because I like what they're doing. Matter of fact, in many occasions, I despise them if you listen to this show. Truly. You know, Mark, it's not a binary choice. We get these idiots telling us, oh, it's not? Let's see, there's a Democrat Party, Republican Party, Libertarian. What else? Well, you can write somebody in. Oh, I didn't even know. I can write somebody in. When's the last time that worked as, a, uh, as an effective measure? Very few times. Go ahead. 
Um, there would be, I think it's my responsibility and Congress's responsibility. It's your to responsibility to resign. Can you sound like an idiot? I'll be right back. Mark Levin. This is Mark Levin wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Now back to the best of me. You know, ladies and gentlemen, my wife used to be uh, a top lawyer at Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. Really, the the entire enterprise there. Before she moved on to other things. And we went to their circus a couple of months before, sadly, and really sadly, the circus left town and never came back, at Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey. And I met the ringmaster. And I was so intrigued by the ringmaster. And I was so, you know, during the course of the circus, uh, watching him as well as, of course, everybody else, I told her, I have to meet this guy. I want to meet this guy. I want to know more about him. And then I said, I'd like to bring on the radio show to share you and what you've done throughout your life in Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. There's, I mean, it's 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 uh, Christmas time. It's Hanukkah time, and this is the time to do it. I felt so. And he was the first African American ringmaster in nearly 150 years of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. Jonathan Lee Irison, how are you, my friend? I'm great. I love that introduction, man. <laughs> well, you gave me 20 bucks, and that's what I do. No, no, no. But, but I, I, I want people to get to know you and meet you because, well, let me, let's start this way. Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey. Do you miss it? Because you were with them for quite some time, weren't you? Absolutely. I was there for um, roughly 18 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I more than miss it, of course. It's uh, something that's just... Um, I, I did it for over, almost over half my life, and um, it, it's just something that's really etched into my bones. You know, we have a saying in the circus world, once the sawdust is in your blood, you'll never be the same, and it's true. Um, it was really everything. It, was, it gave me everything. It gave me my family. Um, it gave me a life like no other. Um, just imagine, you know, you get to make a living and have a life. My wife worked for the show. My children worked for the show. And, of course, I did. And so we traveled, played, uh, worked together. And, you know, my children haven't been without me um, since they were born. They've never been away from me, thanks to Ringling Brothers. And that really was the great culture of circus, and that's what I missed most of all. And you probably miss performing and you miss the audience, right? Oh, absolutely. I think most importantly, I just miss the culture mm-hmm. of um the great American pastime, which is the greatest show on earth. Um, I miss the culture of just going from city to city and becoming familiar with um, the many people who just really loved going to the circus. And I would befriend some of the people. You know, I would go to some, you know, I would be invited many times to people's homes for dinner, and we actually maintained relationships with uh, several people throughout the country. Um, but I think most of all, I just miss, you know, I miss my comrades. You know, I miss those wonderful train runs. As you know, we lived on a mile-long circus train, and we crisscrossed this beautiful country uh, on the rails. And um, that, those are the things I miss most of all. And, of course, bringing magic and, and joy and lifting people, giving that to people, um, taking them away from their troubles. You know, I think the circus is probably the only form of entertainment I know of 
where everybody across the board, I don't care who you are, uh, what, what shell you come in, uh, what your political views may be, everybody is drawn to it. And um, that to me was always the biggest thrill and, and, and the source of pride for me that, you know, no matter who you are, uh, it really was for children of all ages. And these were acts that you, you these, these people from all over the world, the best from all over the world, you know, they had to uh, uh, try out to be members of a circus like this, which was the biggest in the world. And so you really met people from every corner of the earth, didn't you? Absolutely. Yeah, that was always, um, that to me was also another wonderful gift um, to actually be immersed in culture um, and to be immersed in in, in and really other people's worlds, you know, and they're, they're bringing their lives over here and they becoming acclimated to um, our American life. And it was just so much fun and it's, it was wonderful. And to know that we've maintained those relationships um, even after the show closed is a really wonderful thing. I mean, you really connect with people and you just tend to find out you have a common humanity, no matter what language you speak, um, no matter what culture you're from. Um, I, I think that was, pro- again, another wonderful gift uh, that The Greatest Show on Earth gave me. And I'm speaking to Jonathan Lee Iverson, who was the last of the great ringmasters. And let me ask you a question. I don't know why this would be controversial. You know, I was taken in the back at some point, or wherever we call it, and I saw these magnificent animals, the elephants, the trainers. They just love their elephants and the and the tigers and the lions and so forth, and you have veterinarians there. And how did you see them, and and the people who who cared for them interacted with them? Heroic. Um, some of the most patient people I've ever met in my life. Uh, I don't think I could have ever handled their jobs. Um, the the things they went through, the ugly um, uh, accusations hurled at them. Uh, day in and day out, um, and knowing what they were doing was just and right and beautiful, and really their particular calling. I'm not an animal person. I'm from New York City. The most exotic mm-hmm. thing I grew up around was squirrels. So I'm not that, I don't have that kind of leaning, but um, I sure do have an appreciation for uh, people who do. Um, even, you know, our friends over in uh, New York City with the carriage horses, I mean, you. You know, caring for animals is not something you go into to get rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not something you do for the glamour of it. You, I mean, it, it's really an ugly job. You, you don't have time to yourself. Um, most of our animal personnel, when we were at Ringling Brothers, I mean, they hardly had any time off because, you know, the animal's needs came first. I remember a story of an elephant animal. He told me his wife was having what their, I think, their third or fourth child. And he got a call that, you know, something uh, was amiss in the uh, elephant compound and they needed him. And his wife there on the delivery table was going, you know how it is in his family, animals first, go get to work. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's having a child and that's how they were. It was like, you know, animals are first. And that's what I saw every day. And also, you know, again, I'm a New Yorker, so um, I'm a bit paranoid by nature. Um, so um, I, these are people I trusted with my own children, and my children had the privilege of being around these animals all the time. In fact, they would invite the kids in sometimes to feed and clean the animals to help them around the stables. I mean, 
you know, I entrusted my children with them, and, you know, they had a great time. And till this day, my children, who grew up far more dynamic than I did, have such a great empathy for for animals and living things because of that experience. They have such a wonderful, um, wonderful sense of, uh, of creatures, and it is something that I take pride in and I know is a gift, again, from the greatest show on earth. I'm speaking with Jonathan Lee Iverson, the last of the great American ringmasters, the first African-American ringmaster that Barnum and Bailey and, uh, ever had, and the last, I guess. I want to talk to you more. How did a guy from New York, from Harlem, wind up in the circus? Don't go away. And by the way, he has a great website, too, BigTopVoice.com, BigTopVoice.com. We'll be right back. This is the best of Mark Levin. Merry Christmas. The Mark Levin Show, live and national at 877-381-3811. Very sad the circus is gone, or at least the uh, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, particularly during the holidays. It's very, very sad. You know, um, while major senior groups like AARP lobby for liberal interests behind closed doors, it can feel as if the voices of mature conservatives in this country aren't heard these days. But that's where AMAC comes in. AMAC is the Association of Mature American Citizens. It is a conservative membership organization that fights to protect your interests on Capitol Hill. Fighting to protect America, limit government, rein in excessive government spending, and uphold the traditional values of family, faith, freedom. AMAC wants to bring that back to America. AMAC members also have access to first-rate benefits, including special rates on car insurance and exclusive deals on cell phone service, car rentals, hotels, and more. With a strong presence in Washington, AMAC is focused on producing results rather than rhetoric. AMAC does more than talk. AMAC takes action. I encourage you to join AMAC today, and you can join online at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Help bring the country back to the values upon which it was built. Just head over to amac.us and become an AMAC member today. Remember... AMAC is better for you, and it's better for America. Now, I'm talking with Jonathan Lee Iverson, the last of the great American ringmasters, uh, as he was for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey. And his website, it's a beautiful website, by the way, is, yeah, it, no, it's really nice, BigTopVoice.com, BigTopVoice. You know, Mr. Producer, put it up on our social sites, if you would. BigTopVoice.com, BigTopVoice.com. All right. I'm curious, everybody's curious. How did a guy from Harlem wind up at Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus? Well, uh, well, first of all, I want to give a shout out to Kim Junod, who actually developed my website, um, at newconceptsonline.com. Um, you know, it was just really a stroke of, uh, wonderful luck, I think. I, I often call it a happy detour. Um, so I grew up, uh, really in a wonderful community. Um, my mother was very, very, very active. She was one of those nosy mothers who didn't give me any privacy. Um, and, uh, she, uh, happened to discover this wonderful organization, um, called the Boys Choir of Harlem. And, uh, we both agreed that it's something I wanted to do. I didn't really know, um, that it was something I had to work for. Um, 
also it was the hardest 18 months of my life. I thought I would just go in and just start performing, but I was 11 years old. I joined the choir, and um, boy, I learned a great deal about just really, you know, putting your heels in the ground and working hard. And I had to work hard. I had to earn that position. I had to learn the rudiments of music, learn how to breathe, learn how to conduct myself with the public. And, you know, we're traveling all over the world, so I had to learn how to conduct myself with different cultures and things like that. So it was just such a wonderful experience, um, you know, being in that choir. And, and the rewards were wonderful. Um, I got to share the stage with so many notable people. I got to sing for four presidents before I even got to high school. Um, and uh, I went from there to the University of Hartford Hart School of Music, where I was studying to be an opera singer. And so I graduated, and um, the plan was to go to Europe to further my studies. Um, so I was just going to raise some more money and do that. But in the process of auditioning and really just hustling to try to get some money to go to Europe, I happened into this audition for the Fireside Dinner Theater Christmas Show. The Fireside Dinner Theater is a wonderful theater out in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. It's family-owned. It's a beautiful city. And uh, I auditioned for them. I got that, but the director, uh, Phil McKinley, was also directing Ringling Brothers. And he called me later that day said, I, I want you for the dinner theater, but would you be interested in auditioning for Ringmaster Ringling Brothers? Now, this sounds strange to me. It sounded like somebody was calling me to join the CIA. But I nodded and thought, why not? You know, um, and so I auditioned. It was a rigorous audition process. It was about 30 other candidates. Um, and really the rest was history. Um, and, you know, I thought I would just do it for a year or two years and, you know, just be a wonderful dinner guest. But uh, it really turned into life. And I ended up doing it for 18 years, but it was it was really a really wonderful, happy detour in my life. It's something I didn't plan, but um, I definitely would do it again. How old were you at the time? I was 22 years old. So you're the ringmaster at 22? You must have been one of the youngest ringmasters, I was too. the youngest, in fact. I was the youngest yeah. ringmaster ever. I was the youngest ringmaster uh, of the greatest show on earth. I joke with my son because unofficially he became the youngest um, because in our very last show, he was actually 11 when they hired him to play me um, mm -hmm. in our final show, the one that you got to see. And so um, it was really, uh, we, we had fun with that. So we, we said, well, there you go. Your son's the youngest ever. But, um, yeah, 22 years old in 1998. Yeah, I really miss it as a fan. As a, as a person, you know, who's just sitting down and watching it, this must you must really miss this. Oh, you and me both. I mean, I, I'm not just uh, somebody who was privileged to work there, but um, I was a fan, too, and I think that's what really made it wonderful for everybody who worked there. We were fans of the show. You know, I remember growing up in New York City and going to Madison Square Garden all the time mm -hmm. um, to see The Greatest Show on Earth. I mean, it was just such a major event. Uh, in my life, I mean, it was just such an age of innocence. And there's something about when the circus comes to town, you know, um, seeing these people from all over the world um, who, you know, who suddenly, in a sense, they become otherworldly with their abilities. And you see these animals that you will never be exposed to had you not gone to the circus. And you see how wondrous and intelligent and humorous uh, animals can be and just the whole atmosphere um, you know it just smells of cotton candy popcorn and and sawdust and other things 
And it's yeah, just, right. I mean, it's just pure joy, you know. I mean, and I think that's what it is, you know. And so every time I hear, I, I hear it all the time, even now that we, you know, it's not even been a year, but I constantly hear from parents who, you know, say, you know, I have to explain to my my child, you know, the circus is not coming around this year, and I know there's a bit of magic that has left the world, and I mean, we know we need it now more than ever. Now, what are you doing now? Right now, at currently, I'm actually uh, at another circus. <laughs> I'm uh, at the Lone Star Circus. I'm doing a holiday uh, engagement um, here in uh, at the Moody Gardens in um, Galveston, Texas. Um, in fact, our show opens tomorrow, uh, December 15th until the 25th here in Galveston, Texas. It's uh, the Lone Star Circus presents Sec Joyeux Noël, and it's a Christmas show. And then we moved the show over to Dallas, Texas for um, uh, December 28th to January 1st. And uh, that'll be at the Dallas Children's Theater um, from December 28th to January 1st. And um, after that, I'm actually scheduled to be in a play um, at the Garden Theater in Orlando um, March 16th through the 31st. Uh, it's called the Tennessee Walk, and um, I'm going to be doing that. But uh, I've been... I've been really on myself. I've been actually uh, writing my book, um, writing my story um, about my experience with The Greatest Show on Earth, my experience growing up, getting to The Greatest Show on Earth, the lessons I've learned. So I'm in the midst of doing that, and it, it, it is uh, tedious. So I, I may have to call It's tough writing a book, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. But um, I'm, I'm doing that, and, uh, you know, hopefully I'll be able to secure a publisher. Somebody will be interested in They'll want to hear about The Last Ringmaster. Um, and that's really, you know, all I'm doing and raising my family and, um, you know. Just well, let me, let me ask you this. These events you're going to be at, do you list them on your website? Um, I haven't listed this one on my website. It was something I just got. It was, um, you know. But will you? Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to send a lot of people to your website. Okay, well, I'll put it on my website, absolutely, and I really appreciate that. Wait a minute, we crashed his website? Do you want to double-check his website and make sure we didn't crash it? <laughs> uh, I, uh, I definitely don't want to hurt you. I don't want to shut down your website. Are you double-sure of that, Rich? All right, I'll tell you what. Uh, before, when we're done, don't hang up, Jonathan. I want you to give this information to my producer, Rich, and we'll put it up on my sites. Okay. okay. All right. I appreciate and, it. And get a hold of your guy and tell him to muscle up your website because uh, <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of people listening who are absolutely intrigued with you. I mean, I really you, you, you've got enormous charisma. You really do. Thank you so much. And the thing is, nobody, you know, people have seen you in the circus all these years. Many of them probably know who you are, too. But your singing voice is incredible. Absolutely incredible. I remember sitting there again with my wife and the and others and saying, I can't believe this guy. So, you know, you're supposed to be watching the lines and this and that, and I'm watching you. So. <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, but you're going to be the Lone Star Circus. I can't pronounce this, to be honest with you. Give us that again. Okay, it's um, the Moody Garden presents Lone Star Circus, Sex Joyeux Noel. So it's basically uh, C-I-R-Q-U-E. Uh, J-O-Y-E-U-X Noel uh, It is dinner and a show And it opens December 15th Through the 25th 
and then we moved the show over to Dallas, Texas at the Dallas Children's Theater from December 28th to January 1st. Okay, I have an idea. Mr. Producer, uh, Jonathan has a Twitter site. Go ahead and link to that, will you? Can we do that? Yes, we will do that. And so people can go over there and talk to you over at, uh, at, your, at your Twitter site, right? Sure, they can talk to me at Twitter or even at uh, Instagram. Instagram. Jonathan Lee Iverson. Jonathan, I hope to meet you again. I hope we can all go to dinner. I mean, you are really a fascinating person to me. Absolutely I really terrific. I appreciate this. Thank you very much. All right. God bless you. Have a great Christmas. God bless you, too. All right. He's a great guy, really. Spend some time with him. Really like him very much. Um... So, Rich, how are we going to fix this? What are we going to do? We're going to we're going to link to what? You're going to put his info. I'll tell you what. You let's get a hold of. Let's call him back. Tell him what he wants us to put up on my sites. Our sites don't crash, and uh, <clears throat> the reason is we have millions of you on them already, so they're built up. And I'm sure they didn't expect this, but I definitely want to uh, to draw your attention to him. It's a rare person that I meet. That really uh, causes me to want to help them. And more than that, to want to present them to you, which is really the point. And uh, I can't wait for his book. And I'm really sorry that Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey is, is not working anymore. Because uh, there's many, many kids out there. You know, you folks have a lot of kids who never had an opportunity to go to that circus. And it was the greatest circus on earth. Absolutely was. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Have a very Merry Christmas. Amorosa. Anybody who cares, raise your hand. Yeah, me neither. She's all over TV, you know, very, very important. So preposterous, the whole thing. Now, I said to you that I'm going to revote Republican next time. Now, why am I going to do it, even though I despise so much of what they do and don't do, and so many of them? Because, ladies and gentlemen, if the Democrats win the House, they will impeach this president. And whether you like this president or not, if you have integrity, if you're intellectually honest, you understand and agree, I think, that he hasn't done anything, anything that justifies impeachment, period. And that it would be a coup d'etat. And so there are some things that are more important than others. You prioritize these issues. That's that. Now, as for this Jonathan Lee Iverson, did I tell you? Is he not incredibly impressive? Incredibly impressive. And uh, keep an eye on that website of his. I'm sure it'll be back. BigTopVoice.com. It's down right now. If you pile in, you're only going to make it tougher. So, But try it. Try it in a few hours. BigTopVoice.com. Uh, you'll see how impressive he is and the various things uh, that he's got there. And uh, we'll keep track of him, too. I should bring him back from time to time, don't you think, Rich? I mean, I really like him. 
I try to expose you to people like this. <clears throat> I mean, we have some substitutes on my program when I'm not here who in and of their, uh, themselves, in their own right, they've worked very hard and they, they were somewhat known, but I, I like to promote them even more. My buddy Dan Bongino. First time I knew Dan Bongino, he was a Secret Service guy that used to listen to my show. Ben Shapiro. First time I, I heard of Ben Shapiro. I think I read something he wrote at Breitbart way back when. And he had a, a program mornings in L.A. And I felt that he deserved a uh, national forum, too. And he's he's done a, a fantastic job. And there's others like that. And so why not use my platform to present them to you? Or at least promote them to you. Or at least give them a bigger audience. You know, if you're like me, your favorite part of going to the mall as a kid was stopping by Mrs. Fields. It'll probably be your favorite part of going holiday shopping this year, too. Something about that first soft bite of the perfect chocolate chip cookie just makes you feel like a kid again. Now, this holiday season, you can give your friends and family that same feeling of pure joy with a holiday gift arrangement from Mrs. Fields. Mrs. Fields' cookies have been around for 40 years. Everyone knows and loves them. Remember the very first time you had one? It's like you finally knew what a chocolate chip cookie is supposed to taste like. They're so soft and chocolatey. Just thinking about those cookies makes my mouth water. You think I'm kidding? It's true. And Mrs. Fields' cookies are freshly baked and ready to enjoy right out of the box. So everyone can have what they've always wanted right now. Here's an exclusive deal for you. Serious. For you, my listeners. Go to MrsFields.com. Simple enough. MrsFields.com. Click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner. You'll see it there. And enter code LEVIN, L-E-V-I-N. You do all that, you'll save 20% on any Mrs. Fields product, including their best-selling Peace Love Cookies tin, which comes with holiday favorites like Nibbler's Bite-Sized Cookies, Brownie Bites, and more. We got this for Thanksgiving. I'm telling you, it was a huge, huge hit. Now, we're in the middle of Hanukkah. It's not too late, and Christmas is also almost here. But at some point, it will be too late, so act quickly. Just click on the microphone, enter promo code LEVIN, L-E-V-I-N. Get 20% off any product at MrsFields.com. That's MrsFields.com. All right. Let's take a call, shall I? Yes, I shall. David, Cantrell, Illinois, the great WTAX. Go. Hey, i got to tell you, one day in my little town of 300, I saw the Bartman and Bailey circus train come through. Uh-oh. And the and the love and affection they show those animals. Oh, I know. It was you know, crazy. you know the PR war, the propaganda war. Don't hang up. That was run against this circus and these these animals and these animal handlers was just pathetic. The sure. the uh, the the politicization of this absolutely awful. These caretakers, these trainers, these veterinarians. I saw it with my own two eyes. Two eyes. They love these animals. They mean everything to them. That's their family. And and for PETA and the rest of them to cherry pick stuff and uh, and accuse them of things of the same PETA that's out there slaughtering puppy dogs as I speak. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, you should have seen them on the train. It was beautiful. It is beautiful. Nah, it's terrible. We've lost an institution in this country now. And it's unfortunate that the company that owned the uh, Ringling Brothers Circus dropped it. It really is unfortunate. Big, big mistake in my view. First, they dropped the elephants. 
Then, of course, they dropped the circus. Really, really terrible. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. Please check out Levin TV. I know you're going to like it. And I'll see you on the radio tomorrow. God bless. <laughs>